Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are in the Gospels once again. This is Gospels number 13. In the previous episode, we had jumped into Jesus' ministry by looking at his story of testing in the wilderness for four days and the Satan uh, coming alongside him to tempt him. We learned and tried to get a better picture of the humanity of Jesus in those temptations and try to give the best understanding of how he would have struggled with those things that Satan said. And we also looked at his response and how he went back to the Torah, specifically Deuteronomy in those calls to remember God's story and, and using that as your call to action on how you respond to testing and temptation. And now we're getting ready to wrap that story up. That's right. We left him with a little vertigo, a little cliffhanger. That's right. right. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, let's do it. Uh, We're going to be beginning here from Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, which is uh, also Luke chapter 4, verse 13, and Mark chapter 1, verse 13, but it's just kind of the second half of it in Mark. Uh, Let's see what we got. And, and you know what? I, I, I can't even read just one because they're all very different. Okay. So Luke says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Matthew simply says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And then Mark says, and he was with the wild animals, <laughs> and the angels were ministering to him. What? Weird. Very weird, right? All right, so let's see what we got. Number one, uh, I guess we should note that Satan does depart as commanded. Uh, now, Luke says he's only going to depart until another opportune time, but... We might stop right there and go, you know what? Another valuable life lesson. He's always scheming, looking for opportunities. And so we must remain vigilant in our faith, which is actually a a super important topic of the entire New Testament. Mm-hmm. Remaining vigilant, yeah. Uh, what else do we got? Matthew says that angels came and ministered to him. Um, so, okay, Satan's temptations, they may look good, but if you stand firm, God will always come through in the end. Now, I feel like having said that out loud, I need to clarify a little bit. Um, I, I wholeheartedly believe this. God will always come through in the end. But this is, it's in accordance with his plan and his will. And let's not lose sight of the fact that, well, Jesus was crucified. The apostles were all martyred, except, I guess, well, no, John was martyred. He just didn't take. Um, So 
you know, you can't look at this. It's not like a name it and claim it or, you know, some sort of uh, prosperity gospel or something like that. But just knowing that God's plan is always for your good. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily define the end. But Mm -hmm. anyway, the angels came and ministered. So that's a good thing. Uh, And then that weird thing from Mark says that Jesus was with the wild animals. What the heck does that mean? You got any ideas, Samuel, at all? Because I had zero. No, it seems very strange. Yeah. Well, I went and looked it up just to see what some other people thought, and I didn't really find anything that stands out as, ooh, that's a really cool answer. But, you know, I found things like, well, the the presence of the animals in this this verse uh, highlight the danger of the place and the effectiveness of the temptations. Hmm, Okay. Another guy says, well, the animals... They actually were a protection and a comfort to him. Okay. Another one is that the animals should remind us of the image in the garden. Hmm. Now, that one's kind of interesting, I guess. But, you know, I don't know what Mark's trying to say. Here's another one. The animals were displaying their subjection to his dominion. Well, all right, that's, uh, you know, there's some cool stuff there. Um, And then here's one. This one might be a little surprising. They actually weren't animals at all. They were more like, you know, the living creatures that are around the throne. So, I mean, that's going way outside the textual box, right? (laughs) But here's the thing. Are any of these right? I don't know. I just think that is a really, really weird thing to insert in the scripture right there. And I would love to meet Mark. I wish I could time travel. Hey, Mark, what do you mean right here? <laughs> I got nothing. So who knows? But all of those, I mean, there, there's some interesting things in there. And then uh, just real quick. Okay, so we've been talking about Jesus and his uh, temptation, the three temptations, whatever. What's really interesting about this is that there's an old Jewish legend that actually has to do with Abraham. So you remember back when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac? Mm-hmm. That's a really big, big part of the, the story then and for the, the whole big picture. Well, you know, we hear it and it's like God says, hey, I want you to take your son, your only son, go to this, you know, whatever. I want you to sacrifice him. Abraham gets up early, goes, he's doing a thing. Well, the legend says that along the way, Satan comes to tempt Abraham to not do what God is telling him to do. And in fact, one of the sacrifices isn't even for Abraham, it's for Isaac, right? So Mm -hmm. he's trying every way he can to get in there and keep Abraham from doing the thing that God has asked him to do. And so you got to wonder, just the fact that they were telling this story about Jesus and being tempted and the fact that there were three temptations— Is there, you know, a connection? Like, did they write the story this way on purpose to take you back to that legend? Uh, Were the readers of this story familiar with this in any way? Eh, We don't know. We don't know. But wouldn't it have made it just that much more effective or impactful? Yeah, it's really cool that you bring that up because I know 
another Marty Solomon teaching with the Abraham Isaac story. He says that, well, the text says that it took Abraham and Isaac a three-day journey to go from where they were staying to the mountain where Isaac almost got sacrificed. And Marty and his ministry go over to Israel every year. And the actual place that they ascribe to the mountain and where Abraham and Isaac were at previously, he says it takes no more than like a half a day's journey actually to travel there. And Marty was just emphasizing like Abraham was kind of like taking the slow route to say like, (laughs) God, if you want to change your mind on any of this stuff before I have to go up there, I'd really appreciate it. So it's kind of cool. You could almost insert those temptations happening in those three days leading up to actually getting up to the mountain when it should have taken just one. Yeah. Any of our listeners who have kids, I know that you'll know what I mean when I say Abraham was slow walking. (laughs) I don't have kids and I know what that means. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He was slow walking it. But yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good point. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, so uh, what that does is bring us to the end of the temptation story, and now this is difficult. It's it's going to feel just a little bit weird. It doesn't feel quite so much like we're moving forward, but maybe we're just, you know, addressing some things we've already touched a little bit. And that's, I mean, you know, that's how the... That's how the Gospels are laid out. We got we to gotta get to it one way or another. So we're going back to the book of John, and now we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up on verse 19 in chapter 1 of John, and it says this, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. And did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Okay. So, again, kind of feels like, whoo, that's kind of a weird jump. Um, but this testimony, this says the testimony of John, this, it's like a legal term. It's like being a witness in court. That's the, probably the best way for us to think about it and look at it. That's what he's doing. But he says... He testifies when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Okay, so this phrase, the Jews. Seriously, Samuel, you're you're sitting there, you're in Jerusalem, there's, I don't know, potentially millions of people all, all across the country. Do you think they all got together and sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem? No. No, of course not. So who does John mean when he says, the Jews. Who's he talking about? Isn't John Jewish? <laughs> well, what you'll find is that John, the gospel writer, he's using this term in a couple of different ways. On one hand, he, when he says the Jews, he's very specifically meaning the leadership in Israel. Okay? And, and I guess uh, there are some they try to get even more specific. They're talking about the leaders that are in Judea as distinct from maybe any of the outlying areas. So this is like in Jerusalem, in Judea, um, very specifically those leaders. And then the other thing that John uses the term the Jews for is to refer to those who are yet unbelieving. 
And and the way that we notice this, maybe to to sort of refine that point, it, it also seems that John, the gospel writer, seems to be referring to the believing Jews as Israelites, which is kind of funny hmm. because not all who are born of Israel are Israel. You, uh-huh. We've heard Paul say, right? Yep. So it's a very interesting thing. So anyway, I'm just trying to point out that when when you're reading right here in John and he says the Jews, he's meaning very specifically the leadership back in Israel in this okay. case. Okay. <clears throat> and then this question, who are you? That's a little vague. <laughs> what, what exactly are you looking for? Right? <laughs> It's kind of like, you know, I moved here to Kentucky uh, about 14 years ago, and when I meet people, they say things like, who are you, or, and who are you, or, you know, something like that. And I, unknowingly, I try to say something like, oh, well, my name's Paul, I'm, you know, blah, blah, whatever. I try to explain who I am, but what they're really asking is, who are you related to? Oh, yeah. They're trying to plug you into the whole picture of who they know, mm-hmm. who are you related to, where do you live, who, right? All that kind of stuff. They're trying to figure out who you are. And so what's interesting is that John here, he seems to fully comprehend exactly what it is they're asking. So here's John. He's got this baptism ministry. It's kind of getting noticed by the Jewish leadership and, and um, okay, Later, he's going to also get noticed by Roman leadership. That's not going to turn out well, but that's coming up later. Um, And so even though their question to us might seem kind of vague, John, he gets it. He knows what what they're saying, and so he answers. And he answers emphatically that he is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. Even that word confess that we see here in the English, that's almost like, you know, you're trying to hide the truth and somebody's, you know, putting screws through your thumbnails or something and, and you're going, oh, okay, 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 I'm not him, right? But it's not. This word confessed, it's a lot more like to make a vow. Hmm. It's much more on like the legal terminology, just like testimony was. Okay. Okay. So we go on after he's answered and they, the, verse 21, and they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So as we've previously said, now we know that he is Elijah who was to come. At least according to Jesus. But we also know that he's not the physical, literal Elijah, right? And so it's very interesting. John is, I mean, he's clear. I am not Elijah, mm-hmm. because their expectation was quite literal. And so, in a sense, you can see John asking, I'm sorry, answering their very literal question with a very clear and literal answer. No, I am not Elijah. And for some part, we, we, we may not know how John felt about himself, you know, being Elijah or whatever. Uh, But they continue, so how about a prophet like unto Moses? Are you him? And again, he's like, no, I am not that guy. 
So we move on. Get to verse 22. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So you can imagine, they're probably getting a little frustrated by this point. They're asking all these questions. He keeps going, nope, not him. Nope, not him. (laughs) They wouldn't have come out to him where he was. They, They wouldn't have come with these questions unless they already had some expectation. Well, what was their expectation? That he might be the Messiah, that he might be the prophet, that he might, right? Uh, Everything they just asked, they're given away. That's what they expected. So they get tired of guessing. Their expectations have been all blown. And so they just put it straight to him yet again. Well, then who are you? And then what does John do? He replies with that same quote. We've already heard it a few times. It comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. All of the Gospels use this verse in their description of John the Baptist. But here, in the Gospel of John, he has John the Baptist speaking the words himself. Hmm. It's very, very uh, cool, I think, that, that he does that. But now let's stop for a second. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. Now, we can break the book of Isaiah up a number of different ways. And, and they're all good. I mean, there, there's some really interesting things to see in there, but I'm going to go with a, a, a very simplified version. I'm going to say, look, chapters 1 through 39 covered a lot about judgment. And then when you get to verse 40, we take this very hard turn, and all of a sudden we're talking about comfort, the comfort of Israel and ultimately all the nations, right? So Isaiah 40 is beginning this new section of Isaiah, if we can call it that. Theme is switching from judgment to comfort, and John is using this quote to identify himself as the voice in the wilderness, the voice that's crying for repentance. And why is that voice crying for repentance? So that the hearer, the repenter, might know and experience God's comfort. It's just like the gospel message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why repent? So that you can experience the kingdom. Why repent from Isaiah? So that you can experience God's comfort. Same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And can we say that comfort and kingdom are directly connected, that those are going to experience comfort in the kingdom because the kingdom is going to be a place filled with abundance and God making right in the system of justice and defeating enemies and there's going to be peace Ah. in the land, like all that should be evoked with comfort. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. We should in our head be putting all those pictures together. Yeah, that's good. And okay, so continuing the text, now we get this weird little thing in verse 24. Uh, My English version puts it in parentheses, you know, and I mean, there's probably some good reason for that. 
But here's what it says. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. Hmm. Why did he choose to tell us that? Okay, so we're going to reiterate something. The Pharisees aren't, Samuel. They're not the bad guys. That's right. The Pharisees aren't the bad guys. We've got to get that out of our heads. Now, again, to be clear, certain Pharisees were definitely bad guys. Certain Sadducees were definitely the bad guys. Certain fill-in-the-blank with whatever you want were definitely the bad guys. But we can't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, okay? The Pharisees were actually quite popular among the people. In fact, they were the popular sect in all of Judaism at this time. They, and this is important, the Pharisees were the ones with the doctrines that we modern Christians hold dear. They were the ones that expected a Messiah. They expected a resurrection. They expected an afterlife. And we can just keep going, okay? John, the writer of the gospel, includes this remark about, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. He's including this as a way of indicating that John's answer, okay, those guys got it. They knew what he meant because they had an understanding of Messiah and kingdom and afterlife and all of those things together. John's answer made sense to them. Mm. Okay. That, that's a big deal. And, but then, okay, now that I've said that, (laughs) we go on to verse 25 and well, what could this mean? So verse 25 said this, they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, some of that should sound familiar to us. We've heard it before. Mm -hmm. But the question, well, then why are you baptizing? I just, you know, I just got done telling you that they probably understood John's answer, right? So that, but they're asking why? Well, okay. You could, you could see this as them not understanding what John said, or you actually could see them understanding it perfectly, right? The, The question isn't whether or not they understand his response, but something in this, they're not seeing why John is baptizing. And here's here's what I want to suggest. John doesn't have any official credentials or authority or any of that. We know that he was supposed to be uh, a Levitical priest, as far as we can tell from his pedigree. He was supposed to go be a priest, but he didn't go do that, at least as far as we know. So we they don't understand Again, who are you? What, like, what, okay, I get it. One crying in the wilderness. We, we can make sense of that. But 
Why? How does that make you one who's able to baptize? Right? And I think it's leaning back to his credentials, his authority. He doesn't really fit the mold of what they expected. A little side note. This was, uh, we were just reading verses 25 to 30, uh, 25 through 28, and John's going to explicitly answer the question down in verse 31, which is kind of weird. We don't know why he doesn't just answer them here, but whatever. That's a thing. But again, part of, part of uh, John's answer to the why are you baptizing is, well, I baptize with water. Okay. Um, that's kind of a strange answer because I, I don't know that they would have expected him to baptize with anything else, right? Mm-hmm. So he answers in this strange way, and and you know it doesn't feel like a good direct answer. Like he's maybe deflecting, and and you might even see within this, uh, um, one who stands that you don't know and uh, sandal I'm not worthy to untie, right? So so maybe. He's expecting them to sort of pick up on this veiled reference about Messiah, right? I I don't know. The answer, it does seem a little bit veiled. It's like John could have been much more direct with them. But on the other hand, if, if you think about what he is saying, talking about the one who stands among us is sandal, I can't tell. I mean, in the end, if we could simplify it, he's saying, because the Messiah is already among us. So why are you baptizing? Because the Messiah is here. The Messiah is the king. That means the kingdom. is it's, it's close. It's at hand. I need people to jump on the repentance train, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so so he, it's like he's answering the question. We'll see it much more clearly in a few verses, but I don't know. It's, the, the dialogue that we see in the scriptures, it's, uh, it's interesting, very interesting at times. But another thing that John says is, among you stands one you do not know. Now, there's a lot of ways to take that. Was Jesus literally standing there with them when this whole little conversation was happening? We don't know. Was Jesus standing there? We don't know. Um, was John... Uh, was he maybe alluding to Jesus's close ties to the Pharisees? I, I, I know we've mentioned it before. We'll say it again. Jesus's whole um, theology, if you want to call it that, it, he was more closely aligned with the Pharisees than anyone else. So is that what John meant? Among you stands one? I don't know, maybe. Or did he simply mean that the same way that they had come to John in the Jordan, well, Jesus also came to John. So was, was you know, John just saying he's a part of the group of everyone who's coming out to associate themselves with the kingdom? We don't really know. I mean, it could be any of those. Um, it's all speculation. There's really nothing else we can do with that. Mm-hmm. And I guess one final little bit about these verses, uh, you know, it talks about these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. For what it's worth, there was also a Bethany that was near Jerusalem. It's going to come up later in our Gospels, and so uh, this one is different, and I, I guess, you know, just don't want you to get them confused. We've already spoken about this place earlier, you know, where John was, but uh, we didn't call it by name at that time. 
Uh, but anyway, it's a different. There are two Bethanies, uh, at least that we see in the scriptures. So don't that let don't let that mess you up. Gotcha. <sighs> so anyway, there you go. Um, those guys are questioning him, and then an interesting thing starts here in the in the in the narrative, verse twenty nine. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." who takes away the sin of the world. So a big verse. Yeah, yeah. The next day, this begins uh, a little bit of a pattern that John uses here. He seems to be trying to, to um, line out the first uh, few days, possibly the week of Jesus's ministry. He seems to be doing it on purpose. Um, and so he starts with, Jesus is coming toward him, uh, and this is Jesus is coming toward John, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. All right. This is going to be fun. (laughs) Whoa, that turned out to be so fun, we actually had to go back, re-record, and edit this new part (laughs) in. So, (laughs) uh, here we go. We're, uh, so back in the text... And we're talking about this phrase, the Lamb of God. So, uh, okay, Samuel, just real quick. When, when you hear that phrase, Lamb of God, what's the first thing that pops in your head? Well, I know that the Lamb is used in the Le- Levitical sacrifices. I know that it was a part of Israel's Passover with leaving Egypt. And I know that they continue to use a Lamb within their own um, festivities within the Passover holiday. Yeah, those are all really good connections, and and you actually have hit on it with the idea of the Passover lamb. Uh, not everyone, but most people seem to make a pretty easy, and I think, to be fair, intuitive connection to the Passover lamb. And why? Well, when did Jesus die? He died right when Passover was getting ready to start. Yeah, it was on Passover. And 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 we know even some of the things behind Passover. It commemorated the redemption from Egypt, right? Their their uh redemption from there. And other things you could look at it as well it saved some from death. In the original story it was the firstborn, but I mean that's a good topic, a good good connection, right? But yeah, at the same time, there are also some little problems associated with that. I mean, let's just think about this for a second. A lot of times you you will hear people say things like, well, Jesus was dying on the cross the same time they were sacrificing the Passover lambs in the temple. And you got to stop for a second and go, oh, wait a second. Didn't they eat the meal last night? Mm-hmm. Doesn't that mean they sacrificed yesterday? All right? Now... To be fair, when we get to that part of the story, that's actually going to be interesting and a little bit more complicated than you might think it is. But the point is, this idea of the Lamb of God being the Passover Lamb, I think there are some problems with it. Now, certainly, if John is supposed to be a prophet, he can definitely, you know, we could think of things like uh, seeing and understanding things that are yet to come and, and that kind of deal. But... Think about the context here. John's standing around. Presumably, there are other people there. And so he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, 
don't you kind of feel like they should have some clue of what he's talking about? You would think so. Yeah. Well, they have no idea that two or three years from now, Jesus is going to die on Passover and, you know, all the things. They don't know that. That doesn't mean anything to them. So why would they take the phrase, the Lamb of God, and associate it with Passover just on their own? Well, they wouldn't. It's it's very anachronistic. It, it um, It's out of time. It's like when we look at it, we're assuming knowledge that comes later in the story. And and that it just it just doesn't work. And so then if if there's some validity to what I'm arguing here, then you would have to step back and ask this question. Well, where else in the scripture, Samuel, where could we say that God uh had a lamb or maybe I should say provided a lamb? Sounds kind of familiar to the Abraham and Isaac story where Abraham says that God is going to provide, I know the text says the ram, but the the Hebrew word can be ram or lamb in that yeah. specific situation. Yeah. And if we go back to, like, for example, Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8, they actually do say lamb. Isaac's like, hey, Dad, you know, I see the firewood and stuff. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, Oh, don't worry about it. God will provide the lamb, my son. <laughs> so, so yeah, th- but that's the part of the story. But here's, here's the thing that I think is important for us to see. Remember, we're trying to figure out what would John mean by the lamb of God, and what could he mean that other people might also actually understand? And you go, oh, God providing his own sacrifice. The lamb of God, the lamb that God provided. They may not quite understand how it is that Jesus is that, but they could definitely hear that phrase and be thinking back, well, if it's a lamb of God, the only lamb that we knew God had is the one that he provided for Abraham, right? So, The point is, it offers some good connections. You could have, uh, like, number one, obviously, in the Abraham Isaac story, it's a sacrifice provided by God. We're going to see in Jesus that he becomes a sacrifice provided by God. We also see that in the Abraham Isaac story, it saves Isaac from death. But if it saves Isaac, doesn't that also mean it saved Jacob? And isn't Jacob called Israel? Is it, so are we not saying that God saved Israel from death? And so Messiah, when he is sacrificed, part of, part of the work that he accomplished was to save Israel from death, and not just Israel. We'll talk about that in a second. So the point is that people of this time would probably un- intuitively, they would probably intuitively understand that kind of a connection. Now, does that make me right? No. Um, but I think it's probably a little stronger of an argument than a Passover lamb. But the point is, John is, he's, he's calling out this lamb of God. We need to be a little careful in not assuming later parts of the story onto this part of the story to try to figure out what he's talking about. And then there's this other little issue that I want to address. So we could say, you know what? I mean, 
certainly for us on this side of the story, both lines of thinking have merit. But in both of the cases that we've talked about here, the idea of taking away sin, well, that's not even in view at all. Passover has nothing to do with taking away sin. The providing sacrifice for Abraham, Isaac, that had nothing to do with taking away sin. And so we need to quit trying to smush this idea of the lamb and the taking away of the sin together. See, what we do is we hear lamb of God and we hear taking away sin and we incorrectly make this connection that says, oh, well, they used to sacrifice lambs in the temple and that took away sin. And the truth is, uh, no, it didn't. But we're going to get to that in another day. And, it, and when I say no, it didn't, I mean not in the way that you think that it did. But again, that's for another day. The point is, we smush them together and we shouldn't. We need to be careful and understand. I mean, if, if I could, I'm just going to recreate the sentence here for a second. It's as if he had said, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the one who takes away the sin of the world. They are not inextricably linked. They're not supposed to be taken together, but that's what we do, and probably not a good idea. Yeah, I think everything that you said is great, and maybe another thing to add to the conversation that hopefully can help people's lines of thinking. Anytime you're thinking about or referencing the temple system, if you can get it into your mind that that was only concerning the fleshly, physical aspect of human beings, specifically Israel's attempts to purify themselves, to draw near to the physical presence of God on earth, right? and then separating that from what Jesus accomplished, which is on a completely different level. It's on a spiritual yeah. sense. It's on an eternal sense. Yeah. And we have, we have those connections, those shadows, like, the temple system was set up because God gave Moses a vision of what the temple system looks like on the heavenly sense. So they're similar, yeah. but they're not on the same page. They're different. So if you keep those two separate, I think it's going to help emphasize the literary and metaphorical ways that John used this phrase and elsewhere as we go along in the story. Yeah. Yeah. So if we ever do finish the Gospels and somehow someday make our way to Hebrews, you're going to learn all about this. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be a big can of worms. Uh-huh. Can't wait, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the important, I guess, uh, point uh, to, to follow up is just to say Jesus is not a literal lamb. I hate that I have to say that out loud, but I do. That would be bad. Yeah, good one. Jesus is not a literal lamb. He's not even a literal sacrifice. Whoa, did you hear those people shutting off the podcast just then? Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, he's not a literal sacrifice. What we are dealing with here is metaphor. So, However it is you read this, however it is you take it, 
John is using well-understood day-in-the-life kind of stuff or day-in-the-life kind of language to represent or symbolize something else. God's faithfulness to his promises to fix the world. It's all being delivered through his Messiah. God's faithfulness to his covenant doesn't end the covenant. That would be silly. God's faithfulness to his covenant is actually the thing that's keeping it in force. So that's just another thing that we do. We try to look at the story and we go, oh, well, you know, Jesus came and did all his stuff. All that old covenant thing is done away with. No, it's not. Yeah. God's being faithful to keep it in force. Important picture. It's good. But that was that was a hard little section. Yeah, it's it's tough for sure. And I mean, even me thinking like it's crazy that John the Baptist <clears throat> says this new Lamb of God taking away the sin of the entire world, like how he has this picture of the nations, all of humanity, when when we look at Jesus' ministry, he primarily is addressing the situations going on with Israel itself, and we don't see yeah. the incorporation of the nations until we get into the Acts and the Apostles being sent out after Jesus' ascension. So it's yeah. it's kind of like this weird momentary fast-forward that John the Baptist is painting right here that I, I would not expect. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to say, we de- we definitely need to be careful with not with treating Jesus, not treating him as a literal sacrifice, because that is one thing that God, at least in the Old Testament, absolutely does not stand for, which is human sacrifice. I know right. in the book of Judges, one of the reasons that God was so adamant about Joshua and all of the different rulers and the judges taking out those pagan nations is because they would do things like human sacrifice where they would take infant babies and and put them on these idol uh, statues that were glowing hot from embers and coals and fires and they would put the baby on it and it would be appeasing their god like horrible horrible travesties and i just i don't want the jewish faith the christian faith to be associated with that because God shows very clearly that he does not want any part of that in his story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, uh, the one time that God requests it. Going back to the temptation versus testing, Mm -hmm. it's a test. Yeah. Because think about it. If Abraham failed the test, Isaac doesn't get killed. If Abraham passes the test, God knows he's going to come through. And, and Isaac won't get killed, mm-hmm. right? God, he is, he does not like human sacrifice in any form. And I, I, I get the metaphor. We all need to get the metaphor and, and, and love the metaphor. But understand, Jesus was murdered by a nation state for nothing. He wasn't a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's an important difference. Yeah, and uh, we'll get but, into it later. Like, if if we are going to entertain that, he is a sacrifice on a spiritual and eternal spectrum. Like, oh, in, yeah. in the same way that he he's not a 
a literal priest within the line of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. He is a priest within the heavenly sanctuary, within the right. heavenly temple. And yeah. you could you could potentially say the same thing about him as a sacrifice, like on a yep. spiritual sense, but not in the way that God designed it mosaically in the Torah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it's uh, it's important that we talk about that stuff because we need a good, clear picture of what's actually going on. It might sound like we're being nitpicky or, you know, kind of getting crazy, but, well, man, why are you focus on any details so much? Can't you just go on with the story? It's going to be important for you to get a proper picture in your head. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but it's good. Oh, it's good. <laughs> All right. Let's keep moving. Uh, we are now at verse 30. Here we go. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Whew, there's a lot in there. Yeah. So let's see what we got. Um, after me comes a man. Uh, Samuel, this should remind us of something probably back in Gospels number one. Oh, John yeah. one fifteen. can you read that? Oh, yeah. Uh, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Yeah. And we were talking about the word, right? Always talking about the word. And this is John saying some of the same similar things, right? I mean, we don't have to flower it up any. This is, this is repeat. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes no sense if we're talking about birth order. We know that John the Baptist was born first. But it makes perfect sense when we understand Jesus as the word, that representation of God, that limited representation that can function in creation. It's not, it's not as if it isn't the fullness of God, and yet its expression, its manifestation isn't the fullness of God, right? Interesting thing. But that's how we make sense of this. He was before me. And then he says, I myself did not know him. We talked about that in the last episode or two when you know, it's like, wait a second, you wouldn't baptize him, or you didn't want to, and, and now you're saying you didn't know him, right? We talked about that. So John emphasizes twice that he doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I mean, just think about that for a second. We don't actually know how well they know each other, uh, and, and from reading this, you would think it was little or, or none at all, but if we go back to the story... Weren't they related? Yeah, they were cousins. They were cousins. So it's odd 
this whole interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus is just a little weird. But here's John the Baptist, and we might even point out what did the what did the scripture say about John the Baptist? He was filled with what? He was filled with the Spirit from the womb. So here's John the Baptist living daily in the Spirit, and yet in some way he still doesn't recognize the Messiah when he sees him. So, I mean, if nothing else, you got to step back for a second and say, this Jesus, pre-baptism, he must have been shockingly ordinary. Right? Yeah. He, he couldn't have been much different from anyone else. John says he only recognized him when God delivered the visible sign of the Spirit descending and remaining. And again, I know the baptism story from Matthew, it gets a little weird. But, John, I need to be baptized by you. These eyewitness accounts, they don't have to coordinate absolutely 100% perfectly. And uh, again, we're, we're behind this idea that sometimes these little, these little uh, disturbances, these little incongruities, whatever, they really add to the authenticity. Yeah. What you said is so cool. If if we are agreeing that Jesus started his ministry potentially at age 34, I mean, I, I'm currently 26, I'll be 27 in just a couple of months, but that is a lot of life to have been lived and to have interacted with so many different family members, friends, acquaintances. Like, I just, can you imagine knowing this ordinary Jesus and having a relationship with him that's very much like how we do now as a human being and then later to find out of the miraculous nature of who he is that just (laughs) oh man that that just it's just so interesting to think about jesus's life pre-baptism and what it must have been like knowing him before all this went down yeah yeah and we bring this stuff up because i think they're they're good questions to be asking of the text and of ourselves and just trying to piece the story together. And man, as we continue, this isn't going to get easier. There are still going to be points where we're going, wait a second. I I thought, I thought it said this over there or that over there. It's, there are going to be weirdnesses that we have to live with. And there, there is a point at which you are going to have to come to terms, you as a Christian, someone who is willing to accept this text as as generally divine, if you know what I'm saying, if you're going to accept that, you're also going to have to accept that it isn't just 100% perfect black and white. There is digging that needs to be done. There's some tension that has to be lived with, and and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. All right. So what else we got? Uh, oh, remember when I said he was going to answer the question directly eventually? He finally hmm. did it. Okay. For this purpose, I came baptizing. And it says, so the first time he answered that question, you know, it was something more along the lines of, uh, at least the way I was paraphrasing it, because Messiah is already among us. This time, he states that he baptizes so that the Messiah might be revealed to Israel. And, and I mean, 
you can see how those obviously go together. You know, he's here and I'm going to reveal him. So, I mean, there's that. But um, John, he baptizes because he wants to reveal to Israel this Messiah that is he's already come. And, uh, you know, pick the number, whether it's 30, 34 or whatever it is. He's been here a while. And that's just kind of weird to think about, mm-hmm. especially when we know of his ministry, you know, coming up, uh, very, uh, just seemingly a very ordinary life. Hmm. Uh, so uh, another thing, he uses the phrase bore witness. This is more of that legal language, which, you know, I think that's important that we note that, you know, that he's he's trying to use strong language, legal-like language to... to uh, give weight to the words that he's speaking, right? Uh, Another one, I saw the Spirit descend. Okay, so God sent John to baptize. God told him, go do this. And then God told John that the Spirit would descend and remain on the one who would baptize with the Spirit. And this is what John saw happen to Jesus. It's very important. It's going to come up more. But this idea that the Spirit remains on him, we just got to hold on to that. Um, And then finally, uh, John makes this claim, this is the Son of God. Now, I think for us, it's pretty easy for us to get a good general idea of what that phrase would mean. What do you mean, son of God? Well, you know, I mean, he's like he's like uh, offspring from God. I, you know, at least if if not literally, maybe you know, obviously, uh, you can see the way it worked out in his life. Or what? I mean, it, we don't have too much trouble with the phrase "son of God," but interestingly, in Scripture, that phrase "son of God" has been applied to. Uh, kings, specific kings along the way. It's been applied to other heavenly beings. You know, maybe maybe angels or something of that nature, possibly. The phrase Son of God was applied to Israel. Mm-hmm. So that phrase has been used a lot in the scriptures. And so it may not be as easy to nail down as we think. Over time, the phrase did eventually get associated with Messiah, what they they hoped this coming Messiah, they wanted him to be son of God, because again, he was a king. So you can see kind of the connection, right? <clears throat> but Jesus is not just another son of God, like we have seen, you know, in the scriptures already. He is the son of God, just like he is the human and the prophet and the high priest and whatever else we want to plug in there, right? He, he is the ultimate of everything. And so John calls him that. And interestingly, we're going to get to this, but uh, do you know what Jesus's favorite phrase was when he was talking about himself? Oh man, I, you've caught me off guard. Yeah. Instead of son of God, oh, he son seemed of man. to prefer, that's right. Son of man. He seemed to prefer that. So we'll have to talk about that when we get there. But uh, interesting. John calls him son of God. Now, I have a question for you, Paul. Yeah. Um, I know that you had said over time that the phrase son of God in Judaism also became associated with the Messiah. 
uh, this probably sounds like a duh question, but is is there a uh, surprise or the the unexpected nature of how they thought about Messiah as Son of God that he was indeed God himself in the flesh as a human being? Is Is that the big reveal that they were not expecting? Or in their traditions, in their musings of what they thought the Messiah would be, was there an aspect of that that they thought about ahead of time? Okay, number one, that is not a duh question. In fact, that is a hugely awesome question because my understanding of Judaism of the day, back in the first century, and, you know, uh, maybe to say this, you know, even the whole idea, the, the real deep uh, understandings, or if you didn't want to call them understanding, speculations about Messiah, who he was, you know, all of those things, they had developed fairly recently, historically speaking, in the last hundreds of years, right? It's not to say they didn't have ideas of Messiah, but, but it really started to get filled out during this time. But their expectation was that this Messiah was going to be a man. The concept of him being God himself was very foreign to them. And and this does stand as one of the weirdnesses between Judaism and Christianity. They have a very difficult time accepting Jesus. Okay, there's a number of reasons. One of those is because we keep saying that he is God. Okay? Now, I've said that out loud, but I'm also going to come back and say, however, within Judaism, within their common teachings and stories and all that kind of stuff, you do indeed find hints, musings, wonderings about this very idea. And so as we continue through our little telling of the story, walking our way through the scriptures, we're going to see in, 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 in ways how it is that the writers are actually making that connection, actually recognizing Okay, yes, you're a man, but you're not just a man, mm-hmm. right? So we're going to see how that begins to come out in the story. And so um, and this isn't the only issue that's like that. There are some issues where Judaism will look at Christianity and go, man, you guys are so far off base. We've never thought that. You're just wrong. And yet you can go back and find it in their own historical, you know, teachers, rabbis, sages, whatever you want to call them, you can yeah. you can find the genesis of it all in there. Hmm. And so that's that's what you're going to see in the apostles and 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 what they write here. Now, of course, they do have the benefit. Jesus dies, he's resurrected, the Holy Spirit comes, and all of this stuff in the scriptures is being exposed to them. So the apostles, the the writers, the disciples, they have an advantage. So we got to remember that as well. But no, your your question is great. Now, 
you are asking the question for a reason. Did my answer actually satisfy that, or is there something more and different you want in there? No, I think you definitely answered it. Uh, I think the the primary message you said was they absolutely thought that he was going to be a man. It caught them off guard that he came as God as well, but there are also things within their traditions that shadow that, that they've somehow been blinded to or partially hardened to or just have totally missed along the way. Yeah. But they'll, they will be revealed that in due time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the phrase that we like is partially hardened because mm-hmm. it's going to be a long time before we ever get to that one. <laughs> but still, it's, yeah, That's that, that was a good question. And in fact... It was so good, we should just stop there. <laughs> okay, we're running out of time also, but whatever. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's a, good. I wanted to say really quickly, though. Yeah. How would you say for our listeners the best way for the Okie Dokie Most podcast um, to grow, to to be spread among knowledge among people that you know i know that i always say this outro about where the podcast is available and how to get it online but how would you say would be the best way for people to know about what it is that we're putting out each week uh okay um i fully recognize that we are living in a digital age we've got all the social media podcasts are all the rage right that's why we're doing it all that kind of thing we get all of that but there is just a funny funny thing about humans Word of mouth is still the thing that spreads the word. You may have people here and there, they're traveling around, they stumble upon things. Of course that happens, right? But there is nothing like when somebody says, I have been listening to a thing. I think you will enjoy it. You should listen to it too. That's the answer to everything. Yeah, it's... It's surprising to hear, but we know of podcasts that have started where nowadays they have tens of thousands of downloads each week, and that happened because, and you know, the the creators of the podcast will attest, it's because of word of mouth, people in person talking about this thing that they've been listening to on their own time and how it's changing them, and what better way than a podcast? Like, it is the most unobtrusive way to minister or you, if you want to say evangelize to someone else to say like, hey, these people put out great stuff. We think that they got their head on straight as best as we can say that we do. Um, <laughs> and you you can give them the link and they can listen to it on their own time. Like it's so much different than having them, not that there's anything wrong with having somebody come to church and listen to a sermon, but it, it just lends itself so well for people to actually give it a shot. So we yeah. just really encourage you if you know someone that might be interested in this, just just text them the link or talk to them about it when you see them. It would really help. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that'd be a good thing. Sweet. There's a lot of stuff here that, um, even if you don't agree with it all, there's, there's a lot of good stuff that we're bringing to the table. It's not ours. We're gathering it together like from others, but it, it's good for people to hear. So do them a favor. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release every Sunday 
at 7 p.m. Eastern Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now pretty much available on every platform, including Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Facebook, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.